Well, last week we started a series looking at some of the challenges that we face in this contemporary world, challenges that maybe others in the past have not faced, and we've called it, I could use some help with, and this week we're talking about technology, specifically digital technology, since that seems to be a place of some of our greatest need and a place that we're looking for wisdom. From conversations I've had with some of you over the last year, this is, uh, seems to be a particularly important topic for parents. Now, we're all in different places when it comes to technology. Some of us are old, others are young. Some of us are digital natives, other of us are digital immigrants. Some of us believe that Wi-Fi is more important than public um, uh, indoor plumbing. Um, others like unplugging at least a week a year. Some love technology and generally believe the more is better. And others of you are ready to become Amish and live if it's, as if it's 1897 all over again. And we're not the only generation to wrestle with technology, with the blessings and curses that it brings, but the rate of technological change has just accelerated. Now, just to give you at least my perspective, um, I was born into a world without color television. Color television had been invented, but only 3% of households had a color television when I was two years old. A world without microwaves and power door locks, and even the widespread use of central air conditioning. The polio vaccine did not exist in widespread use until I was three years old. And I had a classmate who had polio as a young child. I learned to read a map to be able to get from one place to another. My daughters barely know north, south, east, and west. They punch in an address and MapQuest tell, or, uh, Google Maps tells them to turn to the right and left. If they lost cell phone reception, they would starve. Many of these technological changes um, have been literally life-saving, but not all. Technology is not neutral. In fact, the more powerful the technology, the greater the risk than it can and often will be used in negative ways. So we have the power to split an atom, which can create cheap electricity or blow up a major metropolitan city. Now, I grew up in a family of late adopters. Some of that is because my parents were frugal in the best sense of the word. They lived within their means. They wanted to be generous. So spending money on the latest and greatest technological um, innovation was not their idea of a good use of money. We never, for example, had an electric can opener. My dad just looked at me and said, what do you mean? You can't turn the crank? And dishwasher? That was me and my sister and my brother. Most of all shocking, I did not grow up with a television. Um, that's right, no TV until I was in middle school, and then when the, it showed up, it was a small 12-inch black and white television that most of the time resided in a closet. It was only taken out on special occasions. We were each, all three of us, were given a certain time allotment to be able to choose to watch TV, which actually built a cooperative spirit so that we could maximize our viewing pleasure. Now, of course, this was in a day when there were three channels and everything had to be in real time, like live programming, so there, wasn't, there weren't VCRs and DVD players and Hulu and all of that. Now, my parents were a proponent of an uh, earlier technological revolution, the printing press. So they wanted us to be readers, and we are. Um, I come from a family of readers, I live in a family of readers, and my parents can take the credit. When Kathy and I got married, we decided that the first year of our marriage, we would not own a television. We didn't want to make TV the central of our lives, and so our good intentions, however, were thwarted by my good friends at General Mills, who knew that I had not owned a television for a number of years, which they thought found absolutely mind-blowing. So they got together and bought us a wedding present, a TV, <laughs> a color TV. <laughs> One month after our wedding, and I'm not kidding, Lightning hit our house and blew out the TV. 
Unfortunately, uh, insurance replaced it. But we did hold the line on cable. We never had, uh, we had only the local channels until our girls were graduating from high school and off their, on their way to college when one prompted with great lament, great, just when I'm ready to go to college, you get the Disney Channel. <laughs> right about now, some of you are thinking, boy, you sound just a little bit Amish. Now, it's true that my new pet peeve is when the light turns green and the person in front of me does not move because they are looking at their Instagram feed at a, a uh, you know, fried, picture of a fried egg and avocado on toast that their best friend from college just posted. And that's when I go all New York City and I lean on the horn. But I'm not really very Amish. I have a laptop, I have an iPhone, I have a Garmin GPS running watch. But I do try to think about what I buy and try not to buy just all the latest gizmos, like, uh, you know, whatever Apple is offering. So I don't have an Apple Watch, although, frankly, with my old eyes, I doubt I could read the small print on that one-inch screen. But let me be clear. I don't think that the Bible thinks that technology is all bad. In fact, technology is part of what it means to be a human being. It's part of the expression of what it is to be made in the image of God. We're creative people. We have imaginations, something God has endowed us with. And we have the drive to see those ideas become realities. But the problem comes when we worship technology or use it uncritically without thinking about how it might impact our lives. Technology is not neutral. It can be used for good or for evil. We must be wise in the way we leverage it, which means putting it in its proper place, because if we don't, it can and most likely will control us in ways we'll later regret. So technology today has so permeated our lives that it's affecting some of the things that we hold most dear, including the capacity and ability to make and sustain deep human relationships. That means that as families, we may miss out on some of the best parts of life if we don't use technology wisely. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Technology can be wonderful, and frankly, it can bring us together and enhance life in all sorts of ways. Our daughters have spent most of the last few years, after they graduated from high school, living in other places in the country, Kansas and Boston and England and France, and we've been able to keep touch because of cell phones and Skype. When I was in college, my parents lived 300 miles away, and we had to communicate by snail mail and Sunday night phone calls after 8 p.m. when it was 20 cents a minute, remember? One hour of talk time then is equivalent in today's dollars to $65, for which you can now buy a month of unlimited talk and text. Now, all that said, one of my most precious possessions is four large three-ring binders of letters that my parents sent me during those years. They wrote a letter to me every Sunday evening, virtually every Sunday evening, put a stamp on an envelope, and mailed me these letters, which are now a permanent reminder and record of our relationship. What we need, though, is neither to thoughtlessly embrace um, or summarily reject all of technology. Instead, we need to learn to evaluate these things understanding the pros and cons, and be discerning of what and how we use any new or existing technology. But the stakes are high, particularly for families. Now, we may marvel at how a child can navigate an iPad, and we love the way screens can give us just a few minutes of peace and quiet as we're making dinner, but we also worry, worry that their childhoods are passing far, by far too quickly. Their faces lit up by bright five-by-three-inch screens, um, rectangles of aluminum, silica, and glass. And we wonder what effect this is having on them, from shooter games to whatever the iPhone game is sweeping the seventh grade to our own 30 or 
uh, 20 or 30 or even 60 minutes a day scanning Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And then on to the Internet's dark world of the porn. We know that this stuff is affecting us. We can't just give up and do what everyone else is doing, nor can we reject technology out of hand. So what we need to do is to find a third way, a way that doesn't deny us the benefits of technology, but also helps us to make some choices so we can live differently from those around us. Now, just a disclaimer before we go any further, and that is that um, I've spent the last week, or last couple of weeks, actually, reading several books and articles and other things. I've talked to some people who know more than I do, but that does not make me an expert. But I'm convinced, after just what I've been able to look into, that a few relatively small changes in the way we use technology can make a big difference. Differences that will allow us to benefit from the power of technology without letting it take over our lives. But it does require some thought and discipline. But I also don't think we need to panic. While we may never completely get this right, just doing better may well be enough. The goal is to be intentional about what we do with technology. Now, you may not think the Bible has much to say, because after all, we're talking about technologies in, the most, uh, in many cases that have just existed even within the last couple of decades. But the truth is that there have always been technological innovations. Technology, in how we think about it, the question about it is how is it used? And so there are good and bad uses of technology. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples from the Bible. One is a positive example. And this one took place during Israel's exodus in, um, from Egypt and when they were wandering through the wilderness. God had instructed them to build a portable place of worship, a tent that they called the tabernacle. And he gave specific instructions about its design. They were really very specific. But someone had to build it, and it was complicated, and there were some important elements that required quite a bit of thought. So God had a special individual in mind, a man who seemed to have been a cross between Leonardo da Vinci and Steve Jobs. In Exodus chapter 35, Moses said to the Israelites, I've chosen, and he mentions this man's name that I can't pronounce, so I will skip it. And and he said, he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills. And he was specific, to make artistic designs of wood for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. So this is a man who was not just making things, but he was building a place of worship that brought the people together in order to worship God. Now, a few hundred years earlier, there's another example, this time a negative example, and it's in the book of Genesis. It's another use of technology, although this time not for God-honoring purposes. And the story begins when some of the people of that day resettled into a new area. In Genesis 11, we're told, they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. That's a technological innovation. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. So they're using this technology, first bricks and then tar instead of mortar, But they're doing it in order to elevate themselves and to ignore God. You may recognize this as the story of the Tower of Babel. So what God did is he confused them by dividing them into different language groups and then scattering them around the area. 
I realize that these two examples, one positive and one negative, give us really little direct guidance about how to handle the technological issues of our day. And unfortunately, there are few other references in the Bible to exactly what it is that we're supposed to do. Although I do think, even though I'm not going to have chapter and verse for every point I'm going to make today, that what I'm going to talk about is consistent with the overall teaching of the Bible. But before we leave the Bible, I want to highlight what I think is a grid through which we can view our use of technology, any technology, even beyond digital technology as well. And it comes from an incident in the life of Jesus when a man came to him and asked him a question. The question was, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered him, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And some of you will recognize this, and even Amy mentioned it in announcements today, that this is the story from which we get the city church purpose statement, to love God and love others. Although you could also add one more, love yourself. So these are the most important values by which we're to live our lives. So the question we need to be asking about technology is not, does this make me feel better or does it make me more productive, but does it help me love God and others and myself better? So the criteria we need to use in how we think about technology is what's the most loving thing that I can do? So with that as background, I want to offer eight suggestions on how we can live all of this out to be wise about technology. And the first suggestion is to be late adopters. We don't always need the latest and greatest. Heated car seats or a refrigerator that automatically stocks itself. Technology makes really big promises, but we need to ask, will this make me a better person? And sometimes the answer is no. Now here's where I may go a bit Amish on you. Because I think, and a lot of smart people agree with me, that there is no reason that a child under 10 years old needs an iPhone. When I hear that preschoolers have phones, I want to go all Dr. Phil and say, what are you thinking? Now, here's the problem, because sometimes we believe a lie in our culture, and that is our kids are going to fall behind. If they're not introduced to technology when they're young, they won't be computer literate. That assumes that computers are hard to learn. Now, coding is hard, but using an iPhone or an iPad or even a computer is relatively easy. Just look at a three-year-old with an iPad. They get it. They understand it. It doesn't take them more than a few minutes to figure it out. There's really nothing to, to, uh, uh, to teach. So it's neither surprising nor impressive that a third grader can navigate their way around an iPhone. But should they? Many experts agree that computers in schools are a waste of money and leave kids behind, not put them ahead. So the last thing that children need is for things to be too easy. And our devices are easy to use, and they have all these bright, engaging colors that we don't see in nature. They bewitch children, and they use psychology to keep the kids playing the games. They're a little bit like slot machines. They give you an early win, and then they have variable rewards and quick cycles, and they just want to keep playing and playing and playing. Now, let me say, devices are great in small doses, but what kids need even more is to be active. They need to be playing outside, and they need to learn a few hard things, like playing the guitar, not Guitar Hero. So what they need to do is do also do things with others, not alone. So what we need to do is to limit passive screen time. Some of it is okay, but a lot of it isn't, which means you may need to set some rules. 
Now, I thought about, and I could have maybe tried to suggest some rules, but let me just say, our girls are grown and gone. I don't know your reality. I don't know how your daily lives work. I don't even know the technology. So I can't really offer you a list of specific rules, but I think the suggestions we've already had and the ones that will to come will help you maybe think through for your family what you want to set in terms of guidelines and boundaries. I think, though, that the most important suggestion and the most important principle to keep in mind here is to put people, not technology, first. The two major promises, of, particularly of digital technology, is that it will keep us more connected and help us get more done. But we need to be careful, because more often than not, we end up being connected to people we hardly know and rarely see. And some of the productivity gains come at the expense of true human relationships. What we deeply need are deep friendships. We need people who know us and know us well, who know the complexities and difficulties of our lives. People who love us and are so committed to us that they won't let us stay the way that we are. So we have to ask, can social media really do this? And the problem for most of us is that we have a thousand Facebook friends, but no true soulmates. Now, one researcher concluded that the limit on the number of people that we can maintain connections with is about 150 people. Now, some say it might be a bit higher, but even if the higher, the higher number would suggest that my 679 Facebook friends, as of this morning, is a total fiction. And the 150 that this researcher talked about is divided into layers, because there are acquaintances and casual friends and close friends and then intimate friends, with the number getting smaller as you move toward the center. So most people have, say, three to five intimate friends, 15 close friends, 50 casual friends, and so on. What's important here is that going deep with fewer people is what we crave most. So all of us need people we can go deep with. And social media doesn't do deep. One of the most corrosive influences of digital technology is the way that it inserts itself into every moment of every day, constantly distracting us from whatever else is in front of us. Dinging, beeping, buzzing. Our phones make it hard for us to be fully present with one another whenever a phone is present. Now, you've probably heard that multitasking is a fiction. Actually, researchers have suggested that there are only about 2 or 3% of people who can actually multitask, and, and uh, I think probably that's not even completely true. They're just highly capable people. So how can we think a conversation can go deep if we're constantly checking our phones? One researcher found that a, a conversation where a phone is present but never beeps or buzzes still ends up being more shallow. Why? because we know that we might be interrupted. So we need to put the phones away in order to be able to go deep, to be fully present in social settings. One of the places I think we ought to think about this, at least as families, is about car time, because car time can be conversation time. So on your, by the way, this is not talking about just driving your kids five minutes to school, but it is talking about the next time that you drive to the cabin or on a trip or have a time, maybe 15 minutes or longer, don't turn the radio on. Don't put a video in and ask everyone to put their phones in their pockets and let the conversation unfold because car trips are a great place for important conversations about the things that matter. They say it takes about seven minutes for us to move beyond chit-chat into something more significant. So if we have the presence of a device, it ensures that that seven minutes will keep getting reset every time somebody checks their phone or it goes off. The same principle, I think, applies to family dinners. There's really no place for a phone at a family dinner. We ought to let, allow that 30, 45, or 60 minutes unfold without being interrupted by a device. Now, there is one technology I'd recommend, and that's audiobooks on car trips. 
Um, I, uh, we did, in our family, a lot of traveling by car. Couldn't always afford an airplane, and I actually prefer it now. And we would listen to all sorts of audiobooks. It's a shared experience. Everyone's listening together, so you're engaged in something at the same time. And if you choose well, you can listen to great literature, which in turn can lead to great conversation. But the point here in general is to use technology in a way that builds strong relationships. Here's another suggestion, and that is use screens for a purpose. Use technology for constructive purposes versus just doing nothing. One of the things I'm very guilty of is just picking up the phone whenever I'm kind of bored and just surfing, just looking at whatever, Twitter or my email or uh, ESPN or whatever. Um, and I don't really have a particular purpose, just a momentary desire for a quick fix of distraction. If we use our devices only for a purpose, we'll waste less time, we'll be more intentional about how we use our time. And one of the examples of that is television. Whether it's streaming or live programming, consider never turning it on unless you've already decided what you're going to watch. And choose good programming. Channel surfing meets neither of those criteria. A fifth suggestion is to unplug regularly. Being plugged in constantly is not good for us. At least an hour a day, unplug. And weekly, think about blocking off several hours just to leave your phone aside and do something. Um, and never go to bed with your phone. You do not need to answer a text in the middle of the night. One of the main reasons I think that unplugging is so important is that it helps us create space for engaging the creative side of our lives. Digital media, for the most part, is not creative. So way, uh, consider ways to do something analog every day. When I was a child, I did what all children in all times and places and in all of human history have done, and that is that I told my parents I was bored. I quickly learned that that was a mistake because the word bored in my family, um, as soon as it would come out of my mouth, I would be directed to a list that was taped inside a closet door in the lower level of our home that I would be directed to. At the top of the page was things to do when I am bored. And I can, almost 50 years later, tell you that it began, read a book, draw a picture, write a story, take a walk, go to the park, make something, and went on for about 25 items. I mean, I, was, it was, I had to pick one. So what we need to do, though, is occasionally, at least every day, turn off our devices and do something creative. Now, if you're a parent, one of the things you can do is create a space in your home, a space with books and instruments and plants and art supplies and games. Sometimes because often now the hearth of the home is the kitchen, do it, put it in the kitchen or near the kitchen. Um, one of the adverse byproducts of our digital age is that we are losing the ability for sustained reflection. We can't concentrate for more than a few minutes. What we have to do is to break this pattern or our collective thinking as a society will become increasingly shallow. And let me just say that spending 30 minutes on Twitter is not going to cultivate anything close to sustained reflection. The sixth suggestion is to be accountable. One of the really nasty things about these digital devices is that they have a way of allowing us to lead secret lives. That's why it's important that spouses have each other's passwords and parents have total access to their children's phones. If you're paying for it, you get to look at it. This is in part, although not exclusively, because of the ubiquitous, um, uh, ubiquity of pornography on the internet. Now, there are ways to protect or at least limit our exposure with filters and phone settings, et cetera, but accountability here is important. 
It's helpful to have someone close, someone other than a spouse, who can ask hard questions. But let me also say that the best strategy is to live a full, rich life and be deeply connected to God. The struggle with pornography is more common among men than it is among women, although they have their own struggles. But it's an area that while it can bring great shame, when it's brought out into the light, it loses some of its power. So if you have a trusted friend, that's the place to go. Sometimes folks need professional help. But sometimes it's just as simple as meeting with somebody who's on the other side of that journey, someone who can help you. We've got people here at City Church who could fill that, that role and maybe walk with you as you work through this and help, and help you move toward freedom. A seventh suggestion is to set a good example. You see, what we do and what our kids see speaks volumes. Children imitate their parents. What they see you do, they will do. And when we're constantly looking at our phones for just a little hit of dopamine, they will want to imitate that. Some of you know my wife, Kathy, teaches preschool, and she watches her kids do, you know, sort of free play, and they turn calculators and other things into phones and talk on them and act like their parents. Remember, your children are constantly watching you, so if you want them to imitate you, then just continue with those kinds of behavior. The last suggestion I would make, and this one we could talk about for a long time, so what I'm going to say here is relatively brief, but it's to be good digital citizens. Suffice it to say that one of the most troubling features of social media is the way it turns people into monsters. Some behave on social media in ways that I think they would never act if they were face-to-face -face with another human being. And digital interactions are simplistic and flat. They lack context and nuance. And often the facts are either wrong or skewed in a way that is unfair. It's far too easy to retweet something that is untrue, unbalanced, unfair, or just plain mean. This week I was reading one, uh, one person who was commenting on all of this, and he, uh, he mentioned that the ninth commandment we often remember as thou shalt not lie, but it actually says you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So truth-telling isn't just avoiding a falsehood, it's also deeply connected to relationships. Twitter is designed so that it's easy to tear down, embarrass, to delight in the downfall of others, to shame and to express outrage, even if you don't have any context for what's going on. That's why I think the advice that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 is so important. He says, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are in fact doing. So use that as a filter before deciding what you're going to post on Twitter. Also remember that while digital content may feel non-permanent, it is not. It never disappears. In fact, I have uh, been involved in search processes on boards I'm on, and headhunters now will use that as a screen. They'll look for what your digital footprint is like. But even more importantly, remember that God sees it all. Even if you can erase it, God sees it. Digital interactions seem to lack consequences, but they don't. Even though bad behavior almost seems to be the norm in digital space, doesn't mean we need to follow the crowd. Perhaps we need to remember what some of us were taught when we were children. If you can't say something nice about someone, don't say anything at all. Earlier this week, Kathy and I were having dinner, and she asked me what we were talking about. We started to talk about this uh, conversation around technology. And she reminded of something St. Paul once wrote in Philippians 4, verse 8. It's a way, I think, that we can think about filtering the way we have a conversation about technology in a fitting way, I think, to end our conversation today. It's there that Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, we just scratched the surface on this topic, um, but my prayer is that with what we've talked about today, we can at least start a conversation among ourselves, and that together we might be able to think more deeply about how we can use the power of technology in productive ways, God-honoring and life-affirming ways, and that we would have the courage to go against the flow, because the fate of our relationships and ultimately our souls depends upon it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for the way that you have created us in your image and have given us this drive toward creativity and innovation and the desire to make things happen, to make this world a better place. That is the best of what it means to be created in your image. But we also acknowledge the fallen side of each one of us, the way in which we can distort good things for evil purposes. Father, help us to be wise about how we use these technological advances, these things that are marvels of uh, modern engineering and creativity. Help us to use them well. Help us be willing to have the courage to go against the grain when it's necessary. And may we use them in life-honoring and, and, and affirming ways in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.